This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for March 23, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. First of all, a historic agreement is possible. Difficult to achieve, but it's there, and you can see the outlines of it. Some people call it the grand bargain on the Korean Peninsula, which would basically be a decision for the United States to take that we will guarantee the safety and security of North Korea. Our guest this week is Dennis Wilder, a former special assistant to the president and senior director for East Asian Affairs at the National Security Council. He now teaches at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. He joins us to talk about North Korea. What will a possible summit between the United States and North Korea look like? Professor Wilder explains the history, the issues, and offers advice to President Trump as both sides plan for these potentially historic negotiations. Dennis Wilder, let's begin with the basics. What does North Korea have in terms of nuclear technology? What do we know? Well, what we know is during 2017, the North Koreans conducted a series of tests of a missile capable of ICBM distance. They didn't actually fire these missiles to distance. What they did was loft them more or less straight up in the air and bring them back down. But they had a missile called the Hwasong-12, Hwasong-14, and Hwasong-15, all of which they tested in rapid succession during 2017. What we can discern from this is that they have very good engines for these missiles. And they probably came from either the Ukraine or from Russia. How they got there is anybody's guess. Do they have the assistance of Ukrainian scientists or Russian scientists? My guess is they probably do. And that's why we've seen this speed of development of the long-range missile system. The big questions aren't about whether the rocket can fire the distance necessary to get to the United States. The big questions are about the warhead now. First of all, you've got to miniaturize your nuclear weapon to put it on a warhead. We know, of course, that they've had successful nuclear tests, but there is a technological problem getting from just testing to having a miniaturized warhead. And we don't have actual proof that they have done that yet. The second part of it is a nuclear missile coming back into the atmosphere on a parabolic trajectory, as would be needed to come to the United States. The reentry vehicle takes a huge amount of heat on reentry and knocking about. You remember in the American space program with the Gemini capsules, where there were these heat shields that would actually burn off. It's not too dissimilar. To get a reentry vehicle back into the atmosphere safely and get it to target, get the nuclear device back to target on the ground, is a technological feat. And we have no evidence yet from the kind of testing they've been doing that they are able to do that. So the director of CIA and others have said that they may be months away from having this kind of capability. That means they still don't have the capability actually to target the United States. He's making an estimate. It could take them longer than that. 
particularly now that they've stopped testing, it might lengthen the process out a bit. But there are still questions about their ability to take a nuclear weapon and put it on an intercontinental ballistic missile and strike the United States. You answered in part my follow-up question. North Korea described as a hermit kingdom, a country many times unable to even feed its own people. Right. My question then is, where does it get this technology? If it is Russia, what is Vladimir Putin's endgame? Why is he supporting North Korea? And how is this country able to do it? Well, first of all, I don't want to sound as if I am accusing Vladimir Putin of this. Uh, with the dire situation that many scientists in Russia found themselves in, particularly after the fall of the Soviet Union, there were a lot of scientists for hire. Similarly, in the Ukraine, there were a lot of scientists for hire. It is possible that the Russian and Ukrainian governments have not been substantially involved in this activity, but rather people within their defense industries who simply want to do it for money. Uh, we just don't know. And in terms of the technology to build these weapons, where are the other parts coming from? Where's the uranium coming from? Well, that's easy. We know that the North Koreans mine uranium within their borders. Uh, they have also reprocessed plutonium. And so they have the fissile material necessary for a nuclear weapon within the country. Now, whether they had foreign help in learning how to create fissile material out of raw uranium, um, that's another question. But those resources are available to the North Koreans within their borders. And Professor Wilder, I realize this is a, a what-if question. But sure. based on your knowledge of the North Korean government and this region, do you think it's realistic to expect that North Korea would attack the U.S.? You know, I, I don't mean to sound professorial on you, but that's the wrong question. The question that I would ask is, what will Kim do if he achieves this capability? And the concern of American policymakers, and I think it's the legitimate one, is he's not going to fire his missiles, but what he's going to do is try and blackmail what he wants to do is to be in a position to blackmail the South Koreans, the Japanese, and ourselves. Remember that the North Koreans still have this dream of reunification under a communist government. Now, we may all say that's an impossibility, but in Kim's mind and the mind of the Kim dynasty, which he is very much a representative of, they think that over time they can compel the South to reunify on their terms. And so the concern is that if our nuclear shield that the United States provides over Korea and over Japan is now in question, because would we fire missiles um, to support those countries, fearing that he would fire at the United States, then he can blackmail the United States. So this is the worry that has led us to do several things. One, we've created the ballistic missile defense in the United States. And under George W. Bush, we've spent a lot of money building missiles in uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base and Fort Greeley, Alaska. So we do have some degree of missile defense available to us if he were to fire missiles. But that's also a deterrent against his firing missiles at the United States. But I think the real question and the difficult one is, how would he behave 
if he knew he had the ability to kill Americans easily with an ICBM. How would you answer that question? I think he would behave in a more dangerous way. And this is why I am not one of those people who will tell you that we can deter him completely. Some people have argued we should stop trying to stop him from developing this capability and instead move to a Cold War style of deterrence. My concern about that is his goals aren't the same as the Soviets or the Chinese. Again, this is a game about reunification of South Korea. It isn't a game of great power uh, struggle. This is a game of struggle on the Korean Peninsula that we happen to be a part of, and frankly, we happen to be in his way. And so he wants to find ways to back us off. What is your own experience, having worked for President George W. Bush, uh, National Security Council, the CIA, and elsewhere in the government? Uh, my own experience with North Korea is extensive. Uh, I have studied the North Koreans closely. I have studied the regime closely as an analyst. And then when I got to the White House, I uh, assisted uh, Chris Hill when he was doing the negotiations with the North Koreans from the State Department. I sent some of my people along on his delegations. I spent many hours in the White House Situation Room discussing North Korea with the president and national security advisor. And uh, we had some success uh, during the Bush administration, but not enough. Professor Wilder, if I was in your class at Georgetown and I asked you the question, who is Kim Jong-un? How would you answer that? Well, first of all, I'd say think about how many Americans have actually met Kim Jong-un. Can you name them? There's one, Dennis Rodman, a basketball player. So when people tell you they understand Kim Jong-un, we need to be careful of that. It's one of the reasons I support the president actually having this summit with the North Korean leader. We need to see him. We need to get some gauge of this man. What do we know about him? Well, we know, of course, that he sees himself as a dynastic leader. He is the grandson of the founder of North Korea, the son of the second leader of North Korea. Now he has taken over, and he took over at a very young age because his father died unexpectedly. So he took over at age 28. We know that his father actually didn't think he was much of a leader. In fact, there are reports that he thought the sister, who we've seen now recently in South Korea, was actually more capable than he is. Nonetheless, in a paternalistic society, she probably couldn't have become the leader. So this man is now the leader of North Korea. He's 33 years old now. He has a wife. He has probably two children. We know of one for certain. Um, we know he doesn't leave the country. Since he became the leader of North Korea, he has never stepped out of the boundaries of North Korea. He has never, at the leader, as a leader, gone to China or Russia. And the reason he doesn't go to China is he doesn't trust the Chinese. It's very clear that he has a very negative attitude toward the Chinese. One of the things that the Chinese, in fact, are worried about is that if these negotiations are successful, there's the potential that the United States could have a better relationship with this leader than the Chinese do. 
which leads us to these upcoming negotiations. And before we get to that, I have to ask you about your former boss, because President Trump, very critical of Barack Obama and George W. Bush and Bill Clinton, basically saying these presidents kept kicking the can down the road. Now he must deal with North Korea. How would you respond to that argument? I would say that Bill Clinton and President George Bush both really did work very, very diligently on this problem. I think in the Obama administration, they had a different problem, which was they felt the existential threat of the moment was Iran. And so a great deal of the energy, diplomatic energy, of the Obama administration was put into the Iranian problem. And some people called this the period of strategic patience on North Korea. In other words, there was this sense that perhaps the uh, Obama administration, what they really wanted to do was wait and hope that the North Korean regime would collapse or that the Chinese would do something about the problem. When President Trump came into office, President Obama apparently said to him that North Korea was his number one problem. If I were President Trump, I would have been a little disturbed by that because I do think that the Obama administration did not put enough effort into this matter. And so what we saw was increasing North Korean nuclear and missile capabilities during the Obama administration that then led to what we saw in 2017. So I think some of this criticism is right of the Obama administration. I'm not sure it's as accurate when you deal with the Bush and the Clinton administrations. How should President Trump, his incoming Secretary of State and National Security team, prepare for this summit? Well, first of all, I've seen a lot of criticism in the press that this is being rushed in some way. We have been negotiating with the North Koreans since the armistice in 1954. We have been negotiating seriously with the North Koreans over their nuclear capability for 25 years. I don't think this is being rushed at all. It is a different style, and we need to recognize the dangers in that different style. In other words, usually you have a set of meetings, long carried out negotiations by somebody like the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia. Chris Hill did that job. Um, and, and then you move up to summit level once you have an agreement. This is top-down diplomacy. Is that unheard of? Absolutely not. Gorbachev and Reagan at Reykjavik, uh, Nixon and Mao in Beijing. There are examples of this kind of historic top-down decision by the two leaders to try and find a way forward. Is it a gamble? You bet. Could it go wrong? Absolutely. Let me stop you on that point. How could it go wrong? Okay. So let's think about it. These two men have never met each other. There could be good chemistry between them. They could find, unusually, that they like each other. Gorbachev and Reagan found that kind of chemistry. Mao and Nixon found that kind of chemistry. But that doesn't necessarily happen. What if the North Korean leader gets angry? What if President Trump gets angry and they walk away from the table uh, believing that there is no use in negotiating with each other? Then we're back to the standoff and the very dangerous situation that I think we found ourselves in by the end of last year, where the United States has to consider military options if he moves ahead with his nuclear program. So there is danger in this kind of symmetry because it can give such high rewards 
but it can also lead to a breakdown that will be very hard to work our way back from. And conversely, if it does succeed, if it does work out, what would that mean? And how would we, to use the Reagan mantra, trust but verify? Excellent questions. First of all, a historic agreement is possible. Difficult to achieve, but it's there. And you can see the outlines of it. Some people call it the grand bargain on the Korean Peninsula, which would basically be a decision for the United States to take that we will guarantee the safety and security of North Korea, that we won't try to overthrow that regime. And at the same time, they would give up their nuclear weapons. We would then begin the normalization process of relations with North Korea. We would probably, they would insist, that we begin a drawdown, a sequence drawdown of American forces on the peninsula. And then you would see the rebuilding of North Korea. I, it's a little bit akin to what happened in China and Chinese normalization with the United States. Remember, it started slowly from 72 to 78, 79, and then picked up steam. That may be what happens. Now, verification. As a government official, I would have said we have to have 100% verification. As a professor, I know that that's impossible you are not going to be able to find a way of intrusive verification that's going to be perfect. We can have intrusive verification that gets us a long way there. But if the North Korean leader, for example, were to decide that he needed to keep some of this fissile material and bury it deep within a mountain somewhere in North Korea, unless we had really good intelligence, we probably wouldn't know. So one of the things that we're going to have to think about is how much risk are we willing to take that they will cheat on the agreement? Because one of the things that is clear from every agreement I've been involved in with the North Koreans is they cheated. And I have no expectation that they will act in any other way. So that means we just have to be really on our guard we have to figure out a verification regime, hopefully involving the Chinese and others. That is as good as we can get. How much, maybe the better way to ask this question is, how long can Kim Jong-un stay in power? And I ask that because of the human rights issues in the country, the economic issues in the country. We are in the 21st century where technology is everywhere. How long can he stay there? I think that is a very good question. First of all, in the short run, I think one of the reasons why he has provided this opening to President Trump to have a meeting is because the Chinese pressure on him has cut his import, his, excuse me, his export significantly. Up until a few years ago, he was doing about $7 billion worth of trade with the Chinese. If the Chinese continue going the direction they've gone in 2017, particularly at the end of 2017, the trade with China may be down to less than $2 billion this year. That means he's running out of foreign exchange. That means he can't give to the North Korean elite all the whiskey and wine and cars and luxury goods he normally gives to them. The reason the sanctions are effective is we are not affecting Kim himself. We are affecting those around him. 
the leadership that he depends on in North Korea. I think that is a destabilizing factor, and I think that's why he's come to the table, because by the end of the year, if the economic data is right, he may be out of foreign exchange currency. And when he runs out of foreign exchange currency, people in North Korea are going to be thinking about potential replacements for Kim as the leader. If he can't give the elites what they're used to getting under his father and his grandfather, they're not going to stick with him forever. So I think this is an unstable government. I think, Kim, uh, there are a lot of people in North Korea who wonder whether going to the brink with the United States the way he did is the right thing to do. Is it, from your mind? From his point of view? Um, yes, if now he actually comes to the table. Because what he's done is similar to what the Iranians did. You get close to having the capability, and then you negotiate. Kim comes close to the capability and now he's ready to negotiate. He thinks he's got a card in his pocket. And that card is, if you don't negotiate with me, if you don't give me the bargain I want, I'll go back to missile testing. On the American side, we think we've got a card in our pocket, which is maximum pressure. If you don't negotiate with us, you don't come to the table in good faith, then we'll put even more sanctions on you. We'll squeeze you even more, and let's see if you can survive at that point. Let's take a historic step back very quickly. Who drew the DMZ? Why was that line drawn that divided North and South Korea, and when? Uh, the 38th parallel was actually set by the world leaders at the end of World War II. And the decision was that the northern part of Korea would be under basically Soviet uh, assistance, and the southern part of Korea would be under Allied assistance. The Soviets gave a tremendous amount of military equipment to the North Koreans, which led them to believe that they were in the position to attack the South. We did not do the same in the South. In fact, we gave very little assistance to the South Koreans. Consequently, when the Koreans attacked the South in the 1950s, they pushed very far, very fast, and it was only a daring, you'll remember, amphibious landing by General MacArthur that saved South Korea. We pushed back up into North Korea. Then, of course, the Chinese intervened in the conflict when we got too close to the Chinese border. They pushed us back. And basically, at the time of the armistice, we were back on the 38th parallel. You mentioned that North Korea wanted to see a united Korea under communist control. Conversely, is South Korea prepared for a united country that would be much more democratic? I think the South Koreans, of course, that's their dream. The young in South Korea are a little nervous about this because, first of all, it's such a strange society to them. Young South Koreans do not understand anybody who isn't in the Internet age. They don't understand anybody who doesn't uh, engage in K-pop and all the modern things that the South Koreans have. And they're worried that South Korea will have to expend an awful lot of economic resources and money to make this place something. I think that's the wrong way to look at it, frankly. I think that if we could get the agreement, if we could find a way to reform North Korea, 
um, I think it would be a tremendous boon, actually, to international economics. Remember, the northern part of Korea was actually the most modern part of Korea before the Korean War. How likely is that, a united Korea? When I was a young man, I went to Europe on a European fellowship. And I went to the capitals of Europe to discuss Thatcherism at that point in time. And everywhere I went, I asked the question, will East and West Germany ever be reunified? Not one person I talked to believed that was a possibility. So I am very wary of trying to say this isn't possible. Of course it's possible, particularly since what the North Korean people have suffered under is so horrendous that at some point, someone in North Korea is going to make the decision that this is just the wrong way to go. Well, let me conclude with a two-part question. Walk us through the mechanics of the negotiations in preparing for a meeting with Kim Jong-un, and what advice would you give to President Trump? Sure. Well, first of all, you are seeing the mechanics right now. Uh, General McMaster just went to San Francisco to meet with his counterparts from South Korea and Japan. We need to have a united front as we approach the North Koreans, because remember, this is really a question of Northeast Asian security, not just about the peninsula. So the Japanese need to be on board, the Koreans need to be on board. You're seeing activity in Europe. Foreign Minister of North Korea went to Sweden, and now he's going to Finland. In Finland, they're going to have one of these, what we call 1.5 track meetings in which there will be some officials and some academics. This is all part of a process where you try and figure out what can you do in that first meeting. For example, there is a lot of desire on the U.S. side to get the three Americans who are in North Korea right now out of North Korea. They've been held there for quite some time. Obviously, with the Otto Warmbier case, we need to figure out how we can uh, get these people out of that country. That would be a goodwill gesture to begin the talks that would be very important. Um, in terms of advice to the president, I have several. One, negotiate toughly. These are a tough people. The North Koreans have suffered greatly and they have a very, very thick armor around themselves. Secondly, do not ease up on the maximum pressure too soon. The maximum pressure is your card, and you need to use it and keep countries like China, Russia, the international community going on pressure. Because one problem with sanctions is if you even stall at just the point you're at now, you're actually moving backward because the North will find ways to get through those things. You need to keep putting pressure, keep finding the companies. The United Nations just put out a very interesting report on this where they showed where the leakage is in the sanctions regime, and a panel of experts said we need to do more. It's going to be tough in this environment, but the United States needs to do that. The other thing is keep the Chinese apprised and involved in this process. The Chinese hold a very high card in those pressures they're putting on on the economic side. You need that pressure, and you need the Chinese with you. Dennis Wilder, a veteran of the CIA and of the National Security Council and now a professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service in Asian Studies, we thank you for stopping by the C-SPAN studios. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly Podcast. You can find C-SPAN Radio on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. And you can find previous episodes and all of our programming at cspan.org. Also Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.